Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Salmon, and you're listening to the Love Code Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. And as always, this podcast is really about opening us to the inspiration, the possibilities that exist within us, so we can truly fulfill the greatest expression of who we are. And um, as always, my guests on the Love Code are so inspirational, and they are there to remind us of the infinite potential and possibilities that exist within us all. And today is no exception. I'm really looking forward to our interview because we're going to be talking with Dr. Robert Okin and exploring opening our hearts to the homelessness. Um, let me just share a little bit about Dr. Okin. Um, he is a leading psychiatrist and world-recognized expert on human rights for the mentally disabled. He began his career at the National Institute of Mental Health followed by tenure as Commissioner of Mental Health for the states of Vermont and Massachusetts. He went on to serve as Chief of Psychiatry at San Francisco General Hospital and Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at University of California, San Francisco for 17 years. As a founding member of the Board of Advisors of Mental Disability Rights International, he led psychiatric projects and investigative missions in Armenia, Azerbaijan, Hungary, Peru, Romania, Turkey, Paraguay, and Ukraine, as well as Mexico, where he helped to close the notorious abusive Ocaranza psychiatric facility in Hidalgo, replacing it with more home-like settings and community-based services. He has been quoted in the New York Times numerous times and was featured on ABC's 2020. He is the author of Silent Voices, people with mental disorders on the street. And I just want to share with you a little bit about Silent Voices. Um, In Silent Voices, Dr. Oaken focuses on recognizing our common humanity with the homeless as the crucial first step in solving the problem of homelessness. Throughout his career as a psychiatrist and advocate for mental health service reform, Dr. Oakland frequently encountered people who were mentally ill and homeless and often found himself wondering about their lives. What factors or choices had brought them there? How did they cope in such unbearably grim circumstances beyond their rags, carts, tin cups, and strange behaviors? What were they like? To find out, he spent two years on the streets of San Francisco talking to homeless people and later returned to follow up on their situations. Again and again, he was struck by the bravery and tenacity of individuals who wound up homeless. So, Dr. Elgin, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. This is truly um, a heart heartwarming conversation, and um, I hope it will open people's hearts to the homeless in their communities after we have you know, this inspirational conversation today. I have to ask you, what what was it that guided you into the direction of mental health in your practice as a psychiatrist? Well, are you asking what guided me to focus on yeah. homeless people? 
Well, I think on mental illness in general, it's like, you know, what are those moments, those pivotal moments in our life that define our destiny and purpose and service to humanity? Well, I think probably the main inspiration was uh, the experience of my mother who uh, had lost her father when she was two and her mother when she was nine and her stepfather when she was 11. So she was an orphan by the time she was uh, approaching her early adolescence and she struggled with depression throughout that period. Uh, And I was always keenly aware of of her experience, and I think that's what ultimately led me to pursue psychiatry. Yeah, it's um, always fascinating for me to hear the journeys that we go through and the influences that help us truly find our work in life. And, um, and, you know, what a blessing to be able to... um, direct that experience of your mother into the amazing work that you're doing. Uh, Homelessness, how big a problem is homelessness in the United States? Oh, it's it's huge. Uh, There are just thousands of people who are homeless and mentally ill. Uh, There are probably... Oh, I would say probably 580,000 people who are homeless on any given night, and about 40% of them were 230,000 are mentally ill or struggling with drugs or both. So it's a huge problem. and, And always such a shocking statistic when we think about the wealth of the United States and and uh, and that this this situation has persisted for so long. It's always shocking and and really um, heart wrenching to realize. Well, you touch yeah you touch on a, a very important issue, which is that the United States is an incredibly wealthy country, and you ask the question, how in the world? is the richest country on the planet tolerating this degree of human misery without really taking definitive action to solve it. And the fact is that it is largely our taxation policies that have led to such a gross disparity of wealth in our society that uh, a very small number of people, 10% of the population, own or control about 70% of the wealth in the country. Well, that means that at the bottom of the income ladder, there are people who are literally starved by these taxation policies. 
So, um, um, do, you know, you've worked in many countries. Is, do you find the situation in the United States different than the other countries you have worked in previously? Well, the United States has a much greater homeless problem than countries in Western Europe. And that's largely because those countries have a taxation policy that is, uh, you know, means that the government really takes a degree of responsibility for creating the social uh, safety net that prevents people from becoming homeless who would otherwise become homeless. And in addition to that, the European Union considers housing a human right, where in the United States it is not considered a right at all. It's considered a privilege. Uh, so that's a second factor. And then a, a third factor is that, at least in some of the uh, Western democracies, the family structure is much tighter than it is in the United States, and families take much greater responsibility for taking care of people who in the United States would become homeless. And, you know, Dr. Oaken, I, I mean, I've been to San Francisco, I've been to L.A., and you just see, you just see that community of homeless. What is it about the homeless situation that um, is so scary for most people that, that so they don't even want to approach people? Are right. Well, homeless people who are mentally ill you know, look strange to people who pass them by. You know, some of them are talking to themselves, but most are quiet. But they're so poor that it's their poverty that makes them look strange. The fact that they're in rags, uh, they're, all their possessions are held in a cart and you know some of them may smell because there's no opportunity for them to take a shower uh, so people are kind of put off and don't want to look at these people and don't want to approach them they're afraid of them uh, they condemn them they blame them for their poverty and their mental illness uh, they stigmatize them. They All they really see are the ways that were different, not the ways that were similar. And, right. you know, we generally fail to recognize the similarities that people who are homeless and mentally ill get cold when the temperature drops, you know, get uncomfortable when they have no place to sleep. You know, we just don't see that at some basic human level, we're much more the same than different. 
And and you decided at some point that you were, I mean, you've worked with mentally ill your whole life, but what made you at some point decide you were actually going to go out into the community and, and build and have conversations with the homeless and in some cases build relationships with these people? Well, I was I was walking to my car one night in San Francisco, and it was cold and rainy. And right before I got into my car, I saw a little woman on the street huddled up, trying to protect herself from the rain and the and the wind. And I could not get her out of my mind after that. I just wondered how she could bear the stresses and deprivations of homelessness night after night. And so I decided that I wanted to spend time on the street talking to people who were homeless, you know, to try to understand how they managed, you know, how they how they bore their situation, uh, where they showered when there was no showers to be had, where they relieved themselves when there were no public bathrooms and bathrooms in stores wouldn't let them come into the store to uh, to use the bathroom. I wanted to know what people did, what people thought about when they pushed their carts around the city, you know, what their what their regrets were, whether they had any joys, what the vision was for their lives. I wanted to know why some of them refused to take psychiatric medication, why some of them preferred to sleep outside rather than use the city's overburdened sheltered system. I guess, in a sense, I wanted to know... Well, I wanted to see these people beyond their rags and their carts and their strange behaviors. I wanted to see what it was like to walk in their in their shoes mm-hmm. and live in their skin. So, um, what did you find, Dr. Olson, when to answer all those questions as you were building these experiences and talking to these people? What 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 were their responses? Well, I have to say that when I first started to approach people on the street, I was quite anxious. I wasn't scared of them, but I was. I was worried that they would feel offended by my approaching them and that they would see it as my commentary on their strangeness or their poverty. So I, it took me a while before I worked up the courage to actually ask someone if he or she would talk to me. But once I did... I found that people were quite welcoming, actually, and seemed to seemed to want to talk to me. You know, and I realized at some point that most of these people had been invisible as children and feel invisible as adults on the street. So I think that was one reason that they 
that they wanted to talk to somebody that they viewed as being authentically interested in them as as people. So that was one thing that surprised me, just how how willing these people were to talk to me and how generous they were. Uh, I also was surprised that they believed that the project that I was involved in doing, which was, you know, to bring their their lives to the attention of the public, I was surprised that they thought that that was a a worthy enterprise and mm-hmm. that they they believed that they could help me uh, by talking to me. So that was the second thing. And the third thing was that I thought that they would blame their homelessness on, you know, something other than themselves when in fact, wrongly, they tended to blame themselves, you know, without recognizing that the deck had been so stacked against them from the beginning that there was no way they could end up any place but in the streets. Um, so they, you know, one one guy said to me, if you were born with a big nose, well, no one can blame you. That's just the way you were born. But if you have no teeth, which many people who have been homeless for many years, uh, you know, have, uh, it's proof that you've really screwed up and have no one to blame but yourself. And then another thing I was surprised about was that I expected to find people with tough outer shells who were going to be very difficult to connect with. And instead, I found people were exquisitely sensitive and very willing to talk to me with surprising candor and intensity about very personal and intimate issues in their lives. Most had tears in their eyes during much of the interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to be seen, because yes, uh, they're so invisible for most for most people. Yeah, and the fact that we have such difficulty connecting with them, you know, which is our problem, not theirs. You know, it's really the first to dehumanizing them. And once we've done that, that view that we have as that they're, that they're not quite human like the rest of us, that gets transmitted to our political leaders who then conclude that they don't really have to take this problem seriously. Hmm. It's, it's incredible to... Um to ignore such a huge problem, such a huge problem, which, you know, I mean, places like um, L.A. has become such a huge problem. Yeah. Yes. You know, the other thing that we really need to recognize is that, that the cultural values that we hold as, as a society play a major part in our 
uh, disgust and disapproval of these people. I mean, we live in a society that that idealizes productivity and independence. And people who can't rise to that standard are dismissed, demeaned, and blamed, even though they don't have the qualities that are necessary to uh, produce and become independent. So our cultural values sets the stage for our desertion of these people. And in your experience when you were um, talking to the homeless, uh, what was the predominant underlying um, cause that led them to the situation? I know you talked a lot about childhood trauma. Yeah, well... Yeah, the homelessness, uh, particularly among people who have psychiatric problems or substance abuse disorders, is, is homelessness is really a result of the interaction between individual factors having to do with the individual histories and experiences of people on the one hand and generic or structural or social factors on the other hand. So the looking at the first, the individual factors, most of the people that I met on the street had been neglected or abused as children. Uh, many of them had been physically beaten uh, 40% of the women I met had been sexually abused as kids and adolescents. Uh, and schools and social service agencies largely looked away from the problem. Not entirely, but largely. Now, I just want to say that there are other people who had a genetic predisposition to certain serious mental disorders like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And many of those people had been raised in families that were deeply loving of them and deeply supportive of them and who fought for them and never gave up on them. Uh, but, you know, some of those people ended up on the street just because they were so delusional that they couldn't, uh, continue to live within their families. So just to be clear about this, uh, some families were very, very loving and supportive, but most of the people I met on the street had been abused or neglected as children. And what happened was that as they, uh, as they uh, grew into adolescence, they began to use drugs to help blunt some of the pain of the neglect and abuse they had experiences. But once they started down that path of using drugs, you know, they fell further, further behind in school and many of them dropped out and they entered adulthood with no employable skills and lacking what you might call executive functioning skills, 
which meant that they were set up for poverty and homelessness. But in a different society, their poverty would not have led to homelessness. In our society, it does. And the, that, that leads me to the structural factors. By that I mean, if you, if you think about the history of homelessness in this country, you'll recognize that it really began in a serious way uh, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s when state governments, to save money, threw people in mental hospitals out of their hospitals with no services, no housing, no support, nothing. Well, where did those people end up? They ended up on the street. And not only were people thrown out of the hospitals, but in previous decades, people who would have been admitted to the hospitals were no longer being admitted. So the 560,000 people or 650, I guess it's more like 650,000 people who were discharged from the hospital, you have to add to that people who were mentally ill who couldn't get into the hospital after the policy of deinstitutionalization, you know, ran through the uh, through the country. So that's when it started. So that would be the first structural factor. Secondly, state governments subsequently did not create a robust mental health system that would help these people, nor did government at any level create enough low-income housing for them. Mm-hmm. So that's another, those are other structural factors. Then in many cities, city governments actually uh, closed low-income housing in favor of condominiums and middle-class housing mm-hmm. so that middle-class housing replaced a lot of the low-income housing that had been uh, had existed in the city before that, and they gave tax breaks to uh, to companies like in San Francisco, tech companies were given tax breaks, and the result was that their employees, who were uh, uh, you know fairly well paid, well fairly well paid, were able to displace people who were just hanging on to their apartments and rents went up because demand went up and once rents went up people who were just as I say holding on in a fragile way got pushed off into the streets so that was another structural factor then the federal government as I mentioned before has had tax policy, taxation policies that has really been the underpinnings uh, for homelessness in this country. When Reagan became president, instead of 
trying to increase support for low-income housing, he reduced it dramatically. Another structural factor. And then finally, in this country, as opposed to Western democracies, as I mentioned before, our social uh, support net, you know, our safety net is so full of holes and so poorly funded that it inevitably means that a large portion of the population is confined, consigned to, you know, to, to poverty. Mm -hmm. So you add up all those factors and you get what you have today, which is, which is over 600,000 people who are homeless. Um, can, can you share with us, um, out of the people you interviewed in your book, um, some of the stories that touched you most deeply? Well... One person who I had breakfast with every month uh, had been homeless for a decade. And what he told me was when he was a child, his mother was severely mentally ill and had been hospitalized several times. And she was quite violent when she stopped taking her psychiatric medications. And he went to bed at night, terrified that she would uh, come in and stab him in the middle of the night. And at one point, she had gone after her husband with a butcher knife in one of her delusional episodes. So this guy grew up as a child in a state of terror Amazingly, he got through school and he was able to get a job as a garbage collector and was incredibly proud of the fact that he worked. Well, at one point on a routine drug screening, some pot was found in his urine and he was, he was fired. He became very depressed after that and uh, lost his fiancée and turned to drugs to try to treat his depression. And going down that road, he uh, became uh, destitute financially and uh, ultimately couldn't support himself in an apartment uh, and slipped off into the street where he remained for the next 10 years sleeping on a heating grate, doing drugs, shoplifting to support his habit, uh, jailed several times, and uh, ultimately lost all of, his, all of his teeth but one. And that one tooth became abscessed and uh, he was hospitalized while he was in the hospital, a social worker from one of the programs I developed uh, approached him and developed a clinical relationship with him and saw him every day for the next year. 
amazingly, she was able to get an apartment for him, get him on uh, Social Security disability income, and his life improved enormously, but he was still taking drugs. At the point that I saw him, I said to him, look, Jeff, you know, your life is so incredibly empty. Do you have no vision for it other than just continuing to take drugs? So he said, well, you know, what I'd really love is a kitten. That would really make a difference to me. So I took him to the animal shelter and we got him a kitten. And three weeks later, when I had breakfast with him, he said, I've stopped my drugs. And I said, how did that happen? He said, well, I I had this kitten that I've just fallen in love with and I can't take care of the kitten and do drugs at the same time. I had to make a choice. Mm. And I chose for the kitten. Wow. Wow. I mean, what what a fortunate man to have found you and to have had that ongoing relationship with breakfast every month to help. Well, he, you know, he he was an amazing guy. He was smart. He talked to me about politics. He was a great baseball pitcher. I mean, you know, these things were so out of sync with the fact that he was sleeping on a heating grate and taking mm-hmm. drugs. You know, by the way, another incident with him occurs to me that that really was very painful to hear. He told me that he longed for a romantic relationship, but it wasn't in the cards for him because as soon as a woman kissed him, and realized he had no teeth, she'd be disgusted mm-hmm. and turn away from him. Mm. 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 Uh, ha- Can I ask you how how you how you managed to um, to you know emotionally when you hear these stories and you get so involved with some of these people, how how, how do you manage to stay <laughs> you know, functioning? Yeah. It's so overwhelming, the emotions and these interactions and these stories with people. Yeah, I I appreciate the understanding of that question. Well... I would say there were good days and bad days on the street. You know, some days I met up with people who were so delusional and so disorganized. You know, their thoughts were so jumbled that I had to work incredibly hard to pick out the themes of what they were trying to tell me. And some of the, some of those people who were the angriest and most explosive were also the most scared. And, um, you know, 
a lot of them had been hurt as children and intruded upon in various ways and they were they were expressing their pain in the only language that they that they really knew and after after a day of speaking to people like that i felt off balance and disorganized myself incredibly unsettled and unmoored and then there were other days where i i really could understand what people were telling me but their stories were so filled with grief and loneliness their lives had been so barren that i walked away with a lump in my throat and i just didn't i didn't know if i could get back on the street the next day you know which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it because here you know they they were they were facing a night on the street and i was going home you know to a meal and a bed and here i was mm. wondering if i could get back on the street you know i had the choice they had no choice so i you know as i try to understand why it affected me so powerfully i would say that there's something that's very contagious about human grief you know it crosses the boundaries of class and race and status in life and i often went home feeling about 1 inch away from from their lives i mean i felt so close to what they had experienced even though objectively of course my life was so different but um as i said grief is so contagious that i felt like 1 inch away from the cliff that had crumbled beneath their feet mm-hmm. and the reason why many of these people did not want to take their their medication was be- i would imagine because they didn't like how it this the some yeah. of the side effects yeah right? that's 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 exactly what it was you know some of the side effects you know these drugs are they're, they're very uh, well they're dirty in the sense that what i mean by that is that they have they have main effects that are good and they have side effects that are really tough for people to bear you know it's some people feel like they want to crawl out of their skin and they just can't stand it and others well there was a woman in the book that uh uh felt so itchy that she was kind of compelled to scratch her skin and when i saw her she was bleeding uh from her face because she couldn't resist the need to scratch uh mm-hmm. and others felt not themselves that so detached uh mm-hmm. from themselves that they that they just couldn't 
they couldn't bear that. They said they'd rather they'd rather be delusional than mm-hmm. to be that mm-hmm. uh, dissociated. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think about what's happening in San Francisco now with the the, the big international meeting that's happening? And the cleaning up, uh, whatever they're doing with the homelessness, making them disappear. Yeah, well, the fact is they're not going to make them disappear. Yeah. They can try, try, but they're not going to make them disappear. There might be sweeps, uh, but people will just move on to someplace else in the city. And... Um, You know, I have to say that it's very hard for cities by themselves to solve this problem because most of the taxing power is in the hands of the state government and more so in the hands of the federal government. And until the state and the federal government get serious about this, this problem will not be solved. Fortunately, we have a governor now who really has always cared about this population. Even when he was mayor, he cared about it. And he's, uh, you know, he's put forth some good uh, budgetary initiatives that I think will make a dent in the problem. Will it solve it? No, but I think it could really make a dent in it. But until until Governor Newsom no governor really cared about this problem or paid attention to it. Well, I I would imagine um, it really is affecting tourism in San Francisco and people come it to is. San Francisco. Right? It is. And, and it's and, affected the city's reputation. And, yeah. uh, you know, the city has become a kind of a poster child for how to desert people who are desperately in need. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks it looks like um, San Francisco has really suffered immensely and so many stores closing down, shopping centers closing down. Um, right. It's, um, you know, uh, I mean, I hope whatever Governor Newsom is attempting to do, it's a huge, it's such a huge problem. So, after this project, after writing your book, what, where are you now? What are you doing, Dr. Oak? And how, how has that project um, affected and changed you? Yeah. Well, no let, me say, let me say just before I answer that question that this problem is eminently solvable. It is not rocket science. It needs the creation of a good mental health system, and we know what that looks like. We know how to do that, and Mm -hmm. it needs the creation of low-income housing with housing support for these people. With those two uh, initiatives, we can solve this problem largely. You know, during the Obama administration, the federal government was embarrassed about the number of homeless vets on the street. And it put money into the creation of services and housing. 
And in a 10-year period, it was able to reduce the number of homeless vets by 40%. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyone yeah. who tells me this is an unsolvable problem, you know, it's not. Yeah. You know, I, so, I, was reading yeah. Really, I was reading a really sad story the other day. It was a vet, and he was involved in this um uh, massive and continuous uh, firing in, uh, I believe it was Iraq, and of continuous f- firing of these huge, of these huge missiles. Yes, and, yeah, I was reading that too. And and what happened to him? He was getting these hallucinations and seeing these you know, visions of of like a of uh, of, of an Iraqi girl haunting him. And um, many of his um, other other colleagues and uh, had committed suicide because they had whatever damage happened from that constant sound to the I'm sure it was brain damage, right? Yes, and then yes, it was. Could not acknowledge it. Gave right. him basically discharged him without any services, and he had a family and wound up homeless. That was so sad. He was just thrown to the wayside. He was not heard. Yeah. A large number of people are affected by the very uh, kind of high, high-power high artillery that you're describing. And apparently, you know, being exposed to thousands of rounds of ammunition uh, that uh, that these rockets fired, uh, create these microscopic, microscopic damage in the brain that has tremendous uh, psychological impact and cognitive impact. And, and, and why the military couldn't acknowledge that is a mystery to me. It didn't seem like... Yeah, well, the military, yeah, the the military always wants to look away from whatever mm-hmm. the uh, whatever the effects of war are that uh, <laughs> that occur because it means that they have to pay to treat these disorders, and so until the evidence is overwhelming, they fight it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I and I guess that's why so many vets wind up on the street because they cannot, they're not cared for. They can't get their needs met. Right, right. And and suffering from PTSD and all the psychological yes. uh, trauma. Yes. yes, all of that is very true. Yeah. Um, so what what are you doing now in your career? Well, I'm continuing to see patients, and I uh, have given a lot of radio podcasts to try to, uh, you know, bring this problem, you know, or at least my view of it to the attention of parts of the public who will listen, and I'm about to take a video camera onto the streets and interview people, uh, videotaping them as they speak, because I think that has a 
that often has more power than uh, than just a, an auditory uh, uh, means of communication. So that's what I'm. That's what my next project is. Well, well, I have to say, in your book, Silent Voices: People with Mental Disorders on the Street. You know, what you write is so compelling, and it's not just your interactions with the homeless. It's your own feelings of uncertainty and insecurity in, in approaching people, which I think we all feel. So what what would you say to people listening to the show in regards to um, connecting or having the awareness of homeless? What, what would you like people to be able to take away from this conversation. Yeah, well, that's really a it's a it's a very important question. I I hope my answer is as good as your question. Uh, I guess I would say that I would want someone to actually look at the person that they're passing. And remember that that person was a child once. And that person likely had the deck stacked against him from the beginning. And to try to have some degree of empathy for what it was like. I mean, I myself wonder if I had been raised in some of those families, would I do any better than the people I pass on the street? I don't think so. I don't think so, um, especially if I had a genetic predisposition to mental illness. So I'd, I'd like the person to remember those things. I'd like the person to try to see beneath the rags and the poverty and the carts and the strange behaviors and just try to remember that this person is just as human as you are. And to say hello to the person and to offer to get the person a sandwich, you know, something so simple, it wouldn't take a lot of time. And in addition, to call or write their representatives and their their congressmen and their, you know, their city selectmen and mayors and so on, and demand that their political leaders do something about this problem other than whining about it. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Orkinoche thinks that the people of power and influence in San Francisco and L.A. have been attempting to do something with their leaders in government as well. Because I mean, I mean, you know, I, I know that the homeless is, you know, reaching areas like Hollywood and some of the wealthier areas <laughs> now have to be faced with the, the homeless in L.A. Well, you know, I have to give an ambivalent answer to that. Yes, they've been trying to do something, but they haven't taken the problem with the seriousness that it deserves. There are some cities where the mayor has really taken on this problem in a, you know, in a major way. And 
um, they've really been able to do something about it. Uh, you know, for example, the mayor of Houston uh, took this on as a kind of a single-minded priority, and he created services and housing for people. In 10 years, he reduced the uh, the number of people who are homeless by 63%. I mean, can you imagine that Houston, in wow. the state of Texas, wow. if the mayor of Houston yeah. can do it, why can't yeah. why can't San Francisco do it with all of its money, its businesses, yeah. its tech, you know, its te- high tech businesses? Of course, it could do it. Well, that was a staggering statistic, and he obviously has the prototype of how to achieve that in other cities. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, um, uh, you know, I I really trust that these conversations you're having and the podcast you're doing, Dr. Oaken, are opening people's eyes and creating a greater compassion uh, towards the homeless, which I know is part of your work so we can reconnect again with the humanity that we all share. Instead of being afraid of that, that dark side of ourselves, that part of us, that we feel we're out of control with, <laughs> um, what we project onto the homeless. Do you, do you think, um, maybe one question people have, is it, do you think it's dangerous to approach people who are a bit delusional? You want to really be able to offer some assistance. Did you find that? Well, I, I, I never found people... Well, that's not so, actually. There was, there was one person who I approached, a woman who was with crutches, and I approached her, and she she got angry at me, you know, but she I wasn't in any danger. So I think the biggest danger is to ignore people because that danger treats them as subhuman. So I would say, by and large, if one does it gently and respectfully and keeps mm-hmm. a certain amount of distance, then I don't think, by and large, people are putting themselves in danger. And all they have to do is try it. And I think they'll be reassured that people will respond to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure, especially if you're coming out of your your heart and that compassion. Yes, place. yes. Yeah. Well, this has been such an inspirational conversation, and uh, I'm I, I so honor the work you're doing, Dr. Oaken, and um, the beautiful book you wrote, and the you know sharing this information, creating. Um, our humanity together. I can only imagine well, it's like living on the streets in San Francisco, which is not a very hospitable place weather-wise to be living anyway. Yeah. Well, I honor your work because without it, this kind of message would never get would never get to the public. Mm-hmm. So I just have tremendous appreciation for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. 
Yeah, and I really hope as people listen to this, um, they will, um, you know, walk by, not walk by, but when they see a homeless person, see that humanity and engage in some way. Or like you said, offer a cup of coffee or a sandwich, which is so appreciated. Just that act of kindness. So, um, again, uh, Dr. Oakland's book is Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. Pick up a copy. It's a great gift for Christmas. If you want to open your heart, that's the way to do it. And um, all the best to you, Dr. Oakland, and the great work you're doing. It's just been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. And to uh, all of you listening, um, um, this uh, Love Code episode, pick up a copy of Silent Voices. It really is a beautiful book with stories and photographs that Dr. Oden took in his experience working with the homeless on the streets. I, I think it really is a beautiful, a beautiful gift to create more compassion, which is what we all need in the world these days. So until next time, may your week be filled with love, peace, and harmony. Bye for now. <laughs>